way. Stop the music. You can't start yet. I haven't done my introduction yet. Oh, I am so sorry, Santa. We're just so excited to get the 2022 Tragedy of Cinema Christmas Special going. Well, just great. That was literally my whole introduction. Oh. Sorry, Santa. Doesn't matter. Just roll the epic Christmas music. Ho, ho, whatever. Cinema presents the 2022 Christmas Special. Naughty. And you. Oh, 
again, naughty. And you, Franklin? Ah, you're on the nice list. <laughs> there. The list is finally done and I have checked it twice. <laughs> now I know who's been naughty and who's been nice. Although, I'm still on the fence about Kyle. There's just something about that fast-talking kid. Perhaps. Just perhaps there's still time for James to whip him into shape. <laughs> perhaps I'll compromise. Maybe I'll get him a coal-colored mic. <laughs> now that, I think, is a good idea. Now, let's go check on my little friends and see their progress in the workshop, shall we? Follow me. Okay, here we are. Ho, ho! What the holy frost? Where is everyone? What? Why are no Christmas toys being made? Hello? Anybody? Bernard? Blitzen? Anyone? This is a little concerning. Where in the North Pole are my little friends? Oh no. What if my brother came back? No. That's impossible. We took care of him last year. They have to be here somewhere. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't see all of you listening in. I'm a little flustered. It seems I've forgotten all about the Christmas podcast this year. I'm afraid you've caught me at a bad time. My helpers have all gone missing. I'll apologize, but I really need to start looking for them. They might be my help. I have an idea. Why don't you all listen to this while I start looking around, and I'll be right back. Thank you. The Tragedy of Cinema podcast is intended as a family-friendly program that by extension strives to be inclusive to all people regardless of their ethnicity, gender, creed, or any other identifying factors in this incredibly diverse world of ours. Oh, pardon me. I am so sorry to interrupt so early. But if you could do me a favor, keep an ear out for my little friends. I might even throw an extra gift under the tree for you. Okay, well, enjoy the show. With that said, some of the films we discuss may contain serious subject matters or have content considered morally objectionable by today's standards. We do not intend to condone or dismiss these aspects of these films, but our primary focus will be on what we believe our film succeeds at, some fun facts, and our personal enjoyment factors of each film. With that said, we hope you enjoy the show. 
there isn't any Santa Claus. Look what I found in my stocking. <laughs> Heaven help a sailor on a Christmas like this. <laughs> this is the jolliest, merriest Christmas I ever spent. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. It is so, so romantic. It gives me pimples all over the coast. I'm as free as a bird. Oh, that's what you think. Don't you come near me, you, you sea wolf. After the way you've deceived me, I, deceive I warn you, you, if you take another step, I'll scream. Hi guys, welcome back to the third annual It's a Wonderful Podcast Life Special. I'm your host Jimbo and joined again by my co-host. The Holly Jolly Man Returns. It's Kyle. Part two. Part two. Um, before we get started, um, just a little background of why we do this. Um, a couple years ago I decided, hey, you know, there may be some people out there that doesn't have any family or friends uh, at Christmas time and uh, we wanted to... I wanted to get together with all of our podcasting friends and see if we couldn't all come as a collaboration where we uh, actually do a little special where we all throw episodes together and make a one big episode. So uh, those of you that didn't have anybody to spend Christmas with would have a little bit of holiday cheer from some of your favorite podcasters. Yeah. Or uh, even if you do, we make you feel like part of our community right. and feel like part you're, of your welcome. You're our family. Yeah, yeah. So we want you to enjoy Christmas with us and we want to enjoy Christmas with you in our own little way. Right. Yeah. So as a, uh, before we get started, I also like to give a special thanks to Tim Mullins, uh, who helps uh, throw all this together. And also my good friend, Santa Claus. Uh, who helps uh, this show uh, special every year too? So like Saint Nick. thanks Tim and thanks Santa Claus. Um, also this year, um, I'd like to have this be a tribute to uh, one of the listeners of our show and a good friend that sadly passed away uh, this year uh, due to a tragic uh, automobile accident. Uh, his name was John Masco. Um, John and I had been friends for many many years. Um, he even came to our live show uh, last July with Hillbilly Horror Stories and Middle Asian Creeped Out. Um, he he loved the cold weather. He loved snowmen. Uh, he loved Christmas. He loved his church, and he loved his friends and family. Um, a little a couple of short stories from about me and him. Uh, I used to work at Burger King, and he worked at the KB Toy Store. So my paycheck would just go straight to him. Right. Yeah. So I would go over there, but he would actually keep uh, toys set aside for me, or as we say, collectibles. Back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 collectibles set aside for me Under until, you know, payday or whatever. Right. So it was nice to have a, a, an end in with the, the toy guy. Um, and then we kind of lost track of each other for a while. And then I ran into him at none, none, none other place than a Celine Dion concert downtown. 
Uh, just wow. out of the blue. Yeah. Awesome. That's just awesome. Out of the blue. Uh, yeah. uh, ran into him do. down there. <laughs> yeah. So, and then uh, after that, uh, we didn't see each other till. Oh man, we probably didn't see each other till he came to the live show. But we had been, uh, you know, talking back and forth on Facebook Messenger. He was a big fan of the Turner Classic Movies uh, channel on TV, and he was he was asking me. He's like, "Hey, you know, I don't have this anymore. I'm looking for a couple of movies." He said, do you think you could get them on your Vudu and let me watch them? I said, absolutely. So uh, he gave me a list of like five. And, uh, I, of course, I, I ordered them right away for him. But the movie that we're going to cover today is one that he had asked me to get. So um, this is my first time watching this movie. I think, Kyle, it's your first time watching this movie. Yes, and is. I don't know why because it's a great movie. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't, heard. I can't believe I've never watched this before. But it's so fun. We are watching or we are reco- uh, covering a Christmas in Connecticut. So, Kyle, let's go ahead and do this episode and, and do justice for John. Okay, we'll do what we can. All right, we have Christmas in Connecticut, released on July 27th of 1945. Um, funny, though, having a Christmas movie released on uh, July. <laughs> Christmas in July, baby. Christmas in July. It's all the time world. It was also released in uh, December 24th, uh, December 24th in 2013, recently, for a re-release. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, let's see here, here. Um, Christmas in Connecticut was directed by Peter Godfrey, written by Lionel Hauser. you said Gilbert Godfrey for a second. Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> totally, totally different movie. Christmas in Connecticut. <laughs> what a different movie. I want that movie so bad. Jafar. <laughs> He's a Marine. He's in the ocean. It's not Navy Man. Uh, that's a terrible impression. Uh, Peter Godfrey, not Gilbert Godfrey. Maybe some relation, actually. Um, written by Lionel Hauser for the screenplay. Adela um, Commandina for the screenplay as Adela... Com- oh, same same name. And Eileen Hamilton for the original story. I guess it's based off an original book, I'm assuming degree. Uh, producer, William Jacobs. Um, composer, Frederick Hollander. Uh, and cinematographer, Carol E. Guthrie. And edited by Frank McGee. No budget this time around. Don't have that data on hand, sadly. But we will be going into some of the technical details right here. Technical details of this film is a runtime of 101 minutes. So kind of on the shorter side of movies overall, but still not too long, especially for the time. Um, so short, brief, you can kind of consume it within, you know, within two hours. Sound mix, this is a mono recording for RCA sound systems back in the day. Very common for the era, especially in 1945. Color info, this is a black and white film. And aspect ratio, this is a 1.37 by 1. I think that's also like around the 4 by 3 aspect ratio, if you're more familiar with that. Quick little plot sermonly here. Journalist Elizabeth Lane is one of the country's most famous food writers. In her column, she describes herself as a hard-working farm woman taking care of her children and being an excellent cook. But this is all lies. In reality, she is an unmarried New Yorker who can't even boil an egg. <laughs> <laughs> the recipes come from her good friend Felix, the owner of the magazine she works for, has decided that a heroic sailor will spend Christmas on her farm. Miss Lanes that knows her career is over if the truth comes out, but what can she do? And whole hijinks ensue where she, you know, <laughs> tries to um, you know, double down on the lie, basically like that, and right. so, things happen. So, you know, man, it, Felix steals the show in several of these oh, scenes, yeah, yeah. and you know, it takes a it takes a lot to get me to laugh out loud during the movie, and I found myself several times in this movie just cracking up. Yeah. 
But we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there in just a moment. I'm going to get the Felix in the cast here in just a second, and we'll take it on there. Next up, we have uh, the cast list here. We have the um, lead character, of, uh, co-leads, I believe I would say, co-leads. We have Barbara Stanwyck playing the character of Elizabeth Lane. Barbara Stanwyck is also in the film Devil Indemnity in 19. 19- 44, Indemnity. I, I, I can't, that's a hard word for me to pronounce it, in my tongue. It's um, like Nemo. <laughs> yeah, Indemnity. I'm going to put five more syllables in there. I shouldn't be. Um, Double Indemnity in 1944. Next up, we have Dennis Morgan playing the character of Jennifer Jefferson Jones. Dennis Morgan was also um, in the film My Wild Irish Rose in 1947. Next up, we have Sidney Greenstreet playing Alexander Yardley, the uh, the boss of the character, the, the big businessman. Um, Sidney Greenstreet was also in the film The Maltese Falcon in 1941 with uh, good old Humphrey Bogart himself back in the day. I believe he was also in Casablanca, but I don't have that cast on here. Um, next up, we have Reginald Gardner playing the character of John Sloan. Um, Reginald Gardner was also in the film The Great Dictator in 1940. I believe it was a Charlie Chaplin film back in the day. Next up, we have as. Um, S.Z. Sackle, um, playing the character of Felix Bassanak. S.Z. Sackle was also in the film Casablanca in 1942. I believe he was like the, uh, the, the kind of like the bar's custodian in uh, the Casablanca bar. Um, next up, we have Robert Shane, playing the character of Dudley Beecham. Robert Shane was also in the film The Giant Claw in 1957. Um, next up, we have Una O'Connor, playing the character of Nora. Una O'Connor was also in the film Witness for the Persecution in She's, 1957. She was in a lot of those Universal Monsters, too. She was? She keeps popping up in several she, of those. Yeah, I, I was going to think the name sounded familiar. Yeah, she was... Uh, I think Bride of Frankenstein was yeah, I think Invisible right. Man, maybe. Visible, yeah, probably both. Probably both. And for that time, probably was contracted out to do like five films for Universal. All that stuff. We're like, you worked for me for three years now. Nice. Next up, we have Frank Jenks playing the character of Sinkowicz. Sickwicks. Um, Frank Jenks was also in the film His Girl Friday in 1940. And then lastly, we have the character of Joyce Compton playing the character of Mary Lee. Joyce Compton was also in the film The Awful Truth in 1937. That's the cast list right there for Christmas in Connecticut. Jimbo, let's get to the fun stuff. So, Well, we will, but let's talk about the movie for a minute. So it starts off with um, basically a submarine sinking a uh, U.S. ship mm-hmm. and two guys are on a raft. Yeah, and you know, you know, they used some stock footage from some older films. You could tell, but you know, this would be if me and Kyle were out there on the uh, raft, because you know they've been out there. I think like fifteen days. Time was ten, and uh, they're sitting there, and the one guy starts having a, a hallucination that you know he's sitting there and being served eating a, eating a, a dinner meal. Yeah. yeah. And, Kyle would be pouring me the beverage, you know, and I'm beverage, sitting there. eating a good steak. Yeah. So uh, basically, they get rescued and they end up in this. Uh, I guess it's like a makeshift uh, hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the one guy, uh, he's like, "Well, what are you having for dinner?" And I say, "Oh, I'm going to have steak and mashed potatoes and, and bread, right? and all these nice and foods." And so the nurse comes in, and his buddy, they open up his. He's got the steak and potatoes, and they open up his. It's like what is raw? This? It was raw egg oh. and milk. <laughs> he's looking. So, which so, I'm terrified to think if that's a natural thing people ate sometimes. <laughs> so I think I think his injuries might have been more severe than the other guys. You know, mm. it's, it's not, I don't want to say more severe, but maybe affected his 
the excuse they used in the film was that um, he gave his last ration to his buddy, so he went longer without food, which would be only hours. But because of that, he can't eat anything for several days. He can only eat the milk with the raw egg in it. Right. Whereas his buddy can eat steak immediately and all the food. So, so during this time as he's re- rehabilitating, he keeps uh, getting this magazine and he keeps opening it up and reading these articles about this lady cooking all these extravagant dishes, which is Elaine, or uh, um, Elizabeth Lane. Elizabeth Lane. And uh, he How just... How terrible her name was Elaine, know, Elaine Elaine. Elaine Lane. <laughs> yeah, and he has... Uh, the, the nurse read it to him. He's over there, like, licking his lips and all that. You know I mean? mm. so, um, so basically this nurse ends up falling for him. Uh, thinks she's going to get married to him, and he's just using her to get food because he he actually does get his steak and he goes yeah. to eat it and he chokes on it. Yeah. He's well, like, it won't go down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he uses his friend's advice. Uh, he uses the magoo. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Jimbo, have you ever swooned a girl with your magoo? <laughs> my Mister Magoo. <laughs> my Mister Magoo. Uh, That's the name for it now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So yes, he like he, he uses his magoo to basically kind of like um, uh, flirt with the nurse and get free food out of her, and then um, the the nurse falls head over heels in love with him, wants to marry him immediately. Um, but he's uh, he's just, uh, he's trying to let her down gently by saying like, oh, I, lady, I travel the world. I've always been a, a rolling stone back in the day and all kind of stuff. Right, too. and he's like, he he ends up you know, uh, she goes in there and she's reading something to him, and she's like. She leaves, and the other is like, well, when are you guys going to get married? Because he falls asleep on her. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess he fell asleep. I thought he pretended. Mm-hmm. But he's like, did he propose? <laughs> she's like, no, not yet. No, so not yet. She has an idea that she's going to write to uh, Yardley. Uh, no, R.A. Uh, Alexander Yardley. Yeah, Yardley. And uh, he, she's like, look, do you remember? She's writing this letter, and he's like, look, I nursed your grandson back. From the months or, or something like that. Back. Right, yeah. so... Yardley gets this, and he's like, well, I know no other way than we'll have him come and be a guest with uh, Lane. Elizabeth Lane. Elizabeth yeah. Lane. Because she's married, Lane she's got a baby, which mm-hmm. she doesn't have any of this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, she'll, she'll have no problem taking on a Navy man in, in the farm that she doesn't own. <laughs> so, um, basically, she, her publicist, I guess, like, look, we got to have lunch, you know, uh, here's here's going to be the problem, you know. Mm-hmm. This is what happens. They want you to uh, bring this serviceman that's been out of the sea. We're going to honor him, and he's going to come spend like uh, a week with you on your farm in Connecticut. You know, I think it's like, like just three days. Yeah, even. yeah. and uh, and of course, she doesn't have any of any these of things. It. Yeah, so she has to uh, to to get access to a farm. Um, she doesn't have to act like she's married. She has to act like she's married, so she gets a man who's been constantly trying to propose and get her to marry him this whole time. Which um, is another hilarious part of the movie because. They're trying to get the judge to marry him. Yeah, uh, the whole, the whole yeah. movie. Well, that's that's the, that's the character who's been trying to get him to get married. Um, this character, um, Sl- uh, John Sloan, is an architect and designs many houses. And he constantly tries to get Elizabeth to marry them, despite the fact that they have basically zero chemistry together at all. And so Elizabeth agrees to marry him on the condition that he saves her for this weekend, so he can entertain the Navy man and keep her job. Um, so they they go to the farm that um, one of the houses he made, it basically like that, and they use that farm as the entertainment spot for that area. Do you remember when he kisses her because the judge is coming over mm-hmm. and he starts talking about his pipe? She's like, look, she's like, when you're kissing me, don't talk about your pipes. 
Don't talk about about waste. Don't talk about because sewage, uh, you know, you know oh, it, plumbing. I think it was yeah. don't talk about plumbing. Well, yeah, because she said it's pipes. Because he mm-hmm. was like, well, there's pipes in here that you know we got the we mm-hmm. we got natural heat. When you said pipe, I thought you were talking about a smoking pipe. Oh no, that's <laughs> all so got confused. But yeah, you're like, don't talk about plumbing. You talk to me, and, and he's like, well, what would you have me talk about? Like, I'd rather you just be quiet. <laughs> just, don't <talk. laughs> just don't talk. So then. The, the another thing that because Yardley has said he's going to come over for their Christmas dinner too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sneaked his way in there because yeah. uh, he wants a good home cooked meal. And, and, Elizabeth, and she can't cook either, she so she cook. has to bring Felix with her. Yes, or her or her best friend, I guess at that I, point I too. I don't know. I, I don't know. because oh, he gets the he. That's the one who gives all the recipes to to Elizabeth um, to post in the book. Right. So Felix is their friend, and so yeah, Elizabeth gets Felix to bring over to come over and be the personal chef for the whole week. For the but he's wanting to see her cook. Yes. Um, yeah. Which, there's a funny scene about flipping a pancake. <laughs> if you got to watch the movie to see Modern it. Modern cartoon. <laughs> it's hilarious. And it's even got the noise like... <laughs> Good slapstick humor. But, but I think some of the funniest uh, moments of this movie is with the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, the the officer comes, you know, they, they have this baby that's Basically, they these ladies drop their baby off, they go to the, the, to go to the factory, factory to, work. to work, and then they'll come pick them up later at night. Yeah. But uh, and the first night, it's a girl, but uh, <laughs> they don't know that moment. So like, so like when uh, when uh, when Jefferson asks, like, "What's the baby's name?" He says, "Oh, it's Robert." Robert. <laughs> it's like, "Oh, it must be time for a bath." I read in your book, you give the bath, you go to the bath every time about this time of night, you give them a bath. And so they take the clothes off. It's like, um, "What do you say this person's name was?" Like, and they look down, like, "Oh, it's not Robert, it's Roberta." Roberta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then she's trying to put the diaper on. You know, she has no idea it, what she's doing. Right. Um, yeah. So going back and forth, and at any moment she finds the thing, she just like Jefferson's uh, so excited to, to get the baby because he takes care of his nieces and nephews or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So for him, it's a family moment where like he gets to re re enjoy his family life a little bit. So he does. So he takes them on immediately. Meanwhile, she's trying to cover up that she has no idea what she's doing with the child. It's so funny. Um, uh, so mm-hmm. basically, this whole entire time, they 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 take the judge and they throw him into like the uh, the study, the study, shut the doors because they don't want. Anybody, Yardley or Jefferson or anybody to know that they're not married yet, that this isn't their kid. But you should just watch it because I don't want to give it all away because hijinks ensue and it's, you know, another baby ends up coming in. It ends up being a boy. Yardley comes in and is like, this one's got blonde hair and it's a boy now. (laughs) Looks nothing like the other baby. Uh, But basically, uh, long story short is Jefferson and... Uh, Elaine. Elaine Elizabeth Yeah Elizabeth yeah. Lane Elizabeth Lane I call her Lane Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's abbreviation E. Lane It's really weird Because they end up She ends up taking A real liking to him And he likes her Because they're like You know Would you ever uh, Fall in love with A, a married Married woman And mm. you know um, Or have you ever been Attracted to a married woman Would you right. kiss a married woman Right Those kind of things It just too. goes on and on and yeah. on You know what I mean Really so, kind of Pushing the envelope I guess <laughs> Yeah There were several scenes They're like uh, With Uh who is it? Uh, Sloane and, and, and Elizabeth go up to the room. They both go into the same room. And the the, the maid's like, ah! I, said, I can't believe it. I thought it was, they were better than this. And she's like berating Sloane. He's like, how could you? you know, she's like, I'm walking out. I'm quitting. And he's like, and you, miss? And she's like, what are you talking Absolute about? heartlet, all those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But... Basically, they end up getting together at the end of the movie, but how they get there is very well done. So let's talk about some of the stuff in the movie. 
Yeah. Uh, the character of Elizabeth Lane was loosely based on the then popular Family Circle magazine columnist Gladys Tabor, who lived in Still Meadow Farm in Connecticut. When Felix first meets Yardley, he takes immediate dislike to him and mumbles under his breath, Fat Man, and walks away. <laughs> and the Maltese Falcon, Green Street, played the role of Casper Gutman, whose code name was Fat, fat Man. man. <laughs> code name Kyle Zayden. Yay! <laughs> oh, it is Christmas. I'll be nice to you. Uh, John Sloan's Connecticut home in this film is the same set used in Bringing Up Baby. Have you ever watched Bringing Up Baby? I never have. I, but I think I own it. <laughs> of course, I you probably, probably do. probably own it. Uh, uh, Betty Davis was originally cast as Elizabeth early in 1944, but Barbara Stanwyck replaced her as in April of the same year. Betty Davis. Do you remember what other movies you Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Oh, uh, whatever oh. happened to Baby Jane. Okay, I think I've actually seen whatever happened to Baby Jane once. Okay, yeah, I could, yeah, it's probably, probably we're fine. Uh, this film marks the first of three film collaborations involving director Peter Godfrey and Barbara Stanwyck, the subsequent films being The Two, Mrs. Carroll's, and Cry Wolf. The two developed a strong and lasting friendship while making these films. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. As Z. Sakal, who plays Uncle Felix, was of a Hungarian ancestry, he was actually born in Budapest and serves several Hungarian inspired dishes in this film. He adds the paprika to the stew, makes goulash, kidneys, etc. I love it. Just like, it's, it's a stew. It's like, I will save this dish. And he just pours like half the container of paprika in it. And it's like, now it's saved. It's like, what? Uh, this was an incident of art imitating life. Sakal detested American food, so I guess he didn't like pizzas and hamburgers and all that. And it says only on eating Hungarian or continental food, or even having his wife cook his lunches for him while he was on set. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's needy. Uh, this is one of the first films to benefit from the post-war euphoria that gripped America in 1945. Despite being released in August rather than the more logical holiday time release, this grossed a then-impressive $3 million dollars. Making it one of the year's dollars. most successful movies. I will pull it up on the inflation calculator right now. Give me just one moment on that one. Oh, you keep, keep going. I'll I will. Up. Sydney Greenstreet, uh, usually cast as a heavy in Warner Brothers movies, has one of his few comedic roles in this film. With much of the humor rising from the fact that his character of publisher Alexander Yardley terrorizes and intimidates almost everyone around him. So, counting out there, Kyle? Yes, I, I count. Um, I always miscount the zeros if I don't do that right. Okay, three million dollars in 1945. How much do you think that'd be worth today? Uh, 187 million. No, that's way too far off. Oh. Actually, worth about almost 50 million at 49.7 million dollars in today. Wow, more than 10 times. <laughs> If we only knew the budget, we'd see if it was actually a winner. But I'm, I'm sure say. this movie took less than $3 million to make Jimbo. <laughs> sure. uh, the entire runaway sleigh ride. The, yeah, this is something else in this movie. They just hop in this, this horse-drawn sleigh, and it just starts going. He's <laughs> like, well, it wasn't tied down. <laughs> it wasn't tied down. Oh, yeah, it just works out. Yeah, yeah. And they end up getting arrested, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but the entire Runaway Sleigh uh, ride sequence was filmed in sound stages on the Warner Brothers backlot with snowdrifts simulated by soap flakes. Soap flakes? Soap flakes. Soap flakes. <laughs> Whatever uh, works. Warner Brothers it's probably asbestos. Just, they're probably just throwing <laughs> probably. asbestos at them. <laughs> uh, Warner Brothers Animation Department quickly co-opted the film's theme song, The, the Wish That I Wish Tonight. 
which was used liberally in its Looney Tunes cartoon series, nearly always in scenes that depicted Bugs Bunny and drag. That explains all the wackiness, too. Yeah. Uh, in 1945, studio head Jack L. Warner went on a cost-cutting kick, hoping to cut down on extravagant production expenditures during wartime. As an example, the mink coat Barbara Stanwyck is seen buying herself as a reward near the beginning of this film is the same coat Joan Crawford wore throughout another 1945 Warner hit, Mildred Pierce. Oh, wow. Of course they reuse things all the time. That's a kind of weird thing to put in trivia. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck refers to herself as uh, being her boss, Charlie McCarthy. Her boss is Charlie McCarthy. This is a reference to the popular ritualist puppet controlled by Edgar Bergen, who is the father of Candace Bergen. You know who Candace Bergen is? No idea Murphy what you're Brown. talking about. Do you know Murphy Brown? She might as well speak in Latin right now, Jimbo. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> see, 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 this is what I have to deal the with, kids people. kids today, they don't know the things from 80 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just before this film, Barbara Stanwyck has starred in Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, in which she played a seductress who lures a man into helping murder her husband. We've all been there. The clothes for that <laughs> film were created by Paramount's resident designer, Edith, he- uh, Edith Head, and Stanwyck was so impressed with how attractive Head's outfits made her look in that film that she insisted Warner's hire Head to design her gowns for this film as well. I'm surprised there was more films than that, too. <laughs> cool stuff. Despite being a guest in Sloan's home, Jones doesn't appear discomforted by Mrs. Sloan when she flirts with him, though Yardley is appropriately shocked by their behavior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, always weird. it was a weird feeling, you know. Like she's over here, like it's weird. Everything is like just like it's it's not cr- it's it's awkward, but not cringy. <laughs> right. Way. But everything like no one knows what to do in the room at any given time. What about and only two people are in on the line? What about when he's playing the piano, you know, and she's got the big ornament in her hand, and she's yeah. just kind of like melting Swooning. on the ladder, and she <laughs> drops the big ornament on the ground. <laughs> Oh, that's oh, great! Yeah, uh, the address on Felix's restaurant menu in the is in the three hundreds on Forty Sixth Street, which would likely be West Forty Sixth Street, Bet uh, Eighth Avenue, or between Eighth Avenue and Ninth Avenues, which is in New York's famous Restaurant Row. Another so, funny scene in this movie. While we're talking about funny scenes, is, oh yeah, um, at the end of the movie when he's fired, Elizabeth. Oh yeah, and and, and Alex goes, is like, or Felix is like, look. He's like, ah, uh, you know, she's going to go work for this other company. Look, they, they sent this letter yesterday. I haven't told you. And he opens it up. And what it says is, hey, you're running out of kidneys. You're running out of liver. And all yeah. this from this restaurant. It's not really a thing. So Felix actually saves the day. Yeah. Um, Felix is the heart of this film. Yeah, I know. In addition to working together on Christmas in Connecticut, Green Street and Sakal also appeared in Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smart Housekeeping is a play on the popular women's magazine, Good Housekeeping. You oh, know. it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. just for the time. Kyle's yeah. subscription. Oh, yeah, it never ran out. <laughs> uh, this material was remade in a 1992 as a cable TV movie with Di- uh, Diane Cannon in the Stanwyck role and Chris Christopherson as the equivalent of Morgan's War Hero part. Oh, wow. It was directed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> what? <laughs> it was not nearly as well received as the original. I could... <laughs> Schwarzenegger's many things film director is not one of them in my mind. <laughs> uh, early in the film, Uncle Felix asks uh, a black busboy about the meaning of the word catastrophe. The busboy's perfect answer, citing the Greek deri- derivation, is one of the few depictions of a person of color that is not derogatory or demeaning in a classic Hollywood film. This passes notice, however, in most discussions on the film. So wow, uh, just one of those things like you know, like silently progressive in a way where it's like I I wasn't racist. Isn't that amazing for 1945? Right. <laughs> Um, yeah. Here you go. I bet you didn't know this, Kyle. Are you ready? Probably didn't. 
One of the two women who dropped off their babies is played by Blossom Rock, a.k.a. Marie Blake. Do you know who she was? No, I do not. Not off my head. She was Grandmama in the TV show The Addams Family. What? <laughs> That's awesome. That's cool. Small world moment. <laughs> and also, um, Kyle, you remember the name of the cow in this movie? No, I don't. I don't remember the name of the cow. Well, you, it's a... Uh, like uh, Mochuzel, Mochi or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Mochuzel. Yeah. yeah. Fans of Clint Eastwood or Hillary Swank will doubtless recognize this name as the cow of the cow, which causes such a fuss in the second act because it is also the ring name given by Eastwood's Frankie Dunn to Swank's Maggie Fitzgerald in Million Dollar Baby. Million Dollar Baby. Have you ever seen Million Dollar Baby? I don't Baby? think you've actually sat down and actually watched it before. Oh man, I'm sure it's excellent. It's a Clint Eastwood film, of course, it's excellent. So, Kyle, what do you think of Christmas in Connecticut? This movie is pure joy. It is just, it is, <laughs> you know. It, it, Will you be watching it again? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. definitely. It reminds me of, like um, Humphrey Bogart and like Three Angels, so, like just like just a fun little Christmas movie that just like has like warms your spirits and just like there's nothing wrong with it because it's just it's pure happiness and joy just being forced down your throat. It's like yeah, I, I love it. Give me, give me any day of the week. If you love old movies, you gotta love. Christmas in Connecticut. I think I'm happy I discovered that. I'm happy like your 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 friend brought this to you, and we got discovered together because again, oh, it's, yeah. it's a fun moment to like. Oh, this is just a fun movie to watch. So yeah, this is this is on my watch list for life to an extent. Um, so I, I enjoy it immensely. Jimbo, how do you think? Oh, absolutely. Film? It's going to have to be added to the old Christmas movie repertoire. Ro- We're rotation, yeah. Every year, probably. Um, it's it's hilarious. I mean, if you can get me to laugh out loud, and Felix just. You know, he's his facial expressions and mumbling, yeah. and uh, he's like when he's teaching her how to flip the pancake. You know, and he flips it, mm-hmm. and it's perfectly flipped. Yeah, and then like she goes to flip it, she flips the first one, and it falls on the burner. And then she flips the second one, sticks to the it's ceiling, feeling. and then the other one, so, he just catches it. Yeah, in his hand, like and he's it's like, all covered in goo. The prop pancakes are so goo. It's weird. But the one that he she throws up and hits the silly Felix is like puts the pan behind his back and he catches it. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a magician. Yeah. Like, no problem at all. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, definitely. This is a great, great movie. Hopefully everybody adds it to their uh, yeah. Christmas playlist. Stuff <laughs> about the rocking chair is so fun. Well, um, as we continue on through this uh, It's a Wonderful Podcast Life uh, journey of this episode. Uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the podcasters that gave their time and effort to put something on here for you guys. We appreciate um, everyone that contributed, truly. Right. Yeah. So, uh, on behalf of all of us here at The Tragedy of Cinema, we hope you have a very wonderful and Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and hope the holidays brings uh, happiness to you. Every ever joy and renewal. Right. So, yeah. Kyle, I think with that, our part of this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Hello. The show's over already? How did you enjoy the episode from the Tragedy of Cinema? I'll have to remember to listen to it later. What movie did they do this year? No, wait, 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 wait. Don't tell me. Let's see. 
If I were a bunch of North Pole elves and I was supposed to be working, where would I be? Of course, <laughs> the cocoa room. It's not break time yet, but I guess when you need your cocoa, you just need it. <laughs> Why do I worry so much about them? They haven't failed me in hundreds of years. They've actually saved me quite a few times. Like when my Eva brother tried his little stunt last year. It was the elves that helped me out. Or that time Jack Frost tried to take over the North Pole. Now that was interesting, but that's a whole new story for another time. Or how about that time Mrs. Claus caught me and Mother Nature... Hey, look, the cocoa room. Time to end their break. Come on. All right, my little help. First, what? I was sure this is where they would be. The cocoa's still hot. Someone was here. Oh, oh, wait. It's a surprise party for me. <clears throat> oh, I guess no one is in here. I guess I'll just have to leave now. I guess I'll have to leave now. I said, I guess I'll have to leave. All right, look. I know you're all back there in the dark. You can come out. I said you can come out. Well, this is getting a little concerning. Maybe you should listen to this special episode from Kinda Mercury while I try to figure something else out. Hmm. This should be interesting. How do you make a Christmas special from a podcast called Kinda Murdery? Against all my intuitions, I'm going to go ahead and play this. Enjoy, and I'm sorry. Warning, Kinda Murdery contains adult themes, explicit language, and descriptions of violence. It is not suitable for anyone, and we recommend you stop listening now. Hello everyone, and welcome to Kinda Murdery a true crime podcast that's mostly about murder and always about the strange and compelling stories that arise when the path less traveled twists to darkness and those who walk its shadows surrender to violence and corruption. I'm your host, Zevin Odelberg, and we have a perilous journey ahead. So thank you for lending me your courage and good company. Merry Christmas, everybody. My name is Zevin Odelberg, and this is Kinda Murdery. A true crime podcast that, as it says in the intro, is mostly about murder and occasionally about other dark human behavior. But this is Christmas, and I don't really feel like telling a story that plums the depths of human violence and depravity on Christmas, so I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to tell you about the 12... You've heard of the 12 days of Christmas, right? Well, this episode is going to be the top 12 strangest, weirdest, 
creepiest, dare I say kind of murderiest, Christmas traditions from around the world. The TV Yule Log is an utterly vanilla example of a Christmas tradition here in the U.S. that much of the Christmas-celebrating world would actually find to be quite strange. But trust me when I tell you that the -the around-the-world rituals to come on today's show explore far more exotic and sometimes bizarre flavors than simple vanilla, or even eggnog. Before we get started, I want to send a huge holiday thank you to my friends Jimbo and Eric from the Tragedy of Cinema podcast for inviting me to join them, along with so many other great shows, for the third annual Tragedy of Cinema's It's a Wonderful Podcast Life Christmas special presented by the Tragedy of Cinema, which is what you are listening to right now. Thank you, Jimbo and Eric, for having me, and thank you, Tim Mullins from Triple H Media, for editing me in. All right, everyone. If you're ready to hear about the top 12 kind of murderous Christmas traditions from around the world, then I suggest you put your personal items underneath the seat in front of you, stow your carry-on in the overhead compartment, let go of the worries of the day, but make sure that your seatbelt is fastened. There's turbulence expected ahead. Kind of murderies, kind of murderiest Christmas traditions from around the world starts now. First off, since most of Kinda Murdery's listeners, and I imagine most of the Tragedy of Cinema's listeners are in the United States, I want to spend the majority of this episode focusing on strange traditions from other countries. But I wouldn't want to imply that Americans aren't weirdos too. So I'm going to quickly hit some of the more bizarre American traditions, and then it's off to the top 12 from around the world. Of course, I know that many of you may think that these U.S. traditions are, quote, normal, unquote, because you are used to them. But to that I say, just stop and think about it carefully for a minute. I think you'll agree that American Christmas is just as cuckoo bananas as anywhere else. How about Elf on the Shelf, folks? The little elf doll that's widely available for purchase and is set out by parents at the beginning of December to watch the behavior of young children. Elf on the Shelf moves around the house sitting and watching over kids, allegedly returning to the North Pole to report back to Santa. What we're talking about here is a little illegal wiretap spy cam dressed as a cuddly toy whose only purpose is to record your child's every move. Kinda murdery? Well, let's hope not, but uh, kinda. Elf on the Shelf is a surefire way to get your kids to behave for the nice list, but it's definitely a creepy addition to your mantle. Then we've got Mall Santas, which basically goes like this. Hey, little boy, go sit on that old stranger's lap and tell him your dearest hopes and dreams while we photograph you. Oh, you're crying? We'll take the picture anyway. And then there's SantaCon, a convention for adults, mind you. Not for adults and children, for adults only. SantaCon is a convention held mainly in New York and San Francisco, where everyone, literally everyone, Everyone shows up dressed as Santa, and then all the Santas flood the streets and get drunk and rowdy like some kind of peppermint Mardi Gras. So yeah, the U.S. is just as weird as anywhere else when it comes to celebrating Christmas, but let's hop in Santa's murder sleigh and take an international flight as we check out the top 12 kinda murderiest Christmas traditions from around the world. I'm going to do my best to rank them in reverse order from least to most murdery. But of course, I respect that you may have a difference of opinion. 
Of particular help in putting this episode together was an article entitled Weird Christmas Traditions from Around the World and in the U.S. by Robin Truman and featured on thetravel.com and also another article from yah.com.au entitled The Eight Strangest Christmas Traditions on Earth. So thank you to both these sources. All right, let's get started, shall we? Number 12. I'm calling this the least murdery, the most festive. Here at number 12, we have rollerblading in Venezuela. The capital of Caracas is doing Christmas right, making the most of a green Christmas by still finding a way to glide rather than walking. Venezuelans in this city strap on their rollerblades on Christmas morning each year and take to the streets to skate in mass, as 70% of the population is Catholic. The government actually closes the streets until 8 a.m. on Christmas Day in order to make sure it's safe for families to enjoy this holiday tradition together and to get to Mass on those rollerblades without much difficulty. Number 11. Kentucky Fried Christmas, Japan. Now, the only reason this one is ahead of Venezuelan rollerbladers on the murdery list is because my doctor would probably tell me that rollerblading is good for me and Kentucky Fried Chicken is not. But here we go. Introducing the greatest Christmas marketing triumph since Coca-Cola, popularized by the fat, jolly, red-suited image of Santa Claus we all know and love. But Christmas isn't huge in Japan, as the Lunar New Year is the Christmas-like holiday in most of Asia. However, a ridiculously successful KFC ad campaign from the 1970s featuring the colonel dressed as Santa established the tradition of Japanese families tucking into buckets of fried chicken on December 25th. In fact, holiday-themed Dirty Bird has become so popular around Japan that restaurant reservations and specially packaged delivery orders are placed months in advance. Number 10. Radish Carving, Mexico. Each year in the Mexican city of Oaxaca, the day before Christmas is marked by an event known as the Night of the Radishes. Sadly, it's not a low-budget 80s horror movie, but instead a vegetable carving competition. Participants get remarkably creative, with everything from nativity scenes to fantastical monsters on display as thousands of visitors descend on the city to witness the fun. The radishes in question are grown specially and pumped with chemicals to make sure they're immense, but it all seems a bit futile as the works can only be displayed for a few hours before the veggies wither away. Other than the name Knight of the Radishes, this one doesn't seem murdery at all, right? I mean, Knight of the Radishes sounds like maybe a guy that was rejected from King Arthur's court. Well, Google it. Because some of those radish hackers get up to carving some pretty murdery stuff. I saw a first-place radish carving of an octopus that wasn't so much an octopus as it was a life-size carving of Cthulhu, ready to devour my soul with his 16-inch protruding tongue. Oaxaca, Mexico says, Merry Christmas from the old gods of the outer dark. Number 9. La Bafana, Italy. Italian Christmases are celebrated with a wine-drinking witch. And no, I don't mean that alcoholic auntie from the dodgy side of the family. Twelve days after Santa's visit... On the eve of the Epiphany, January 5th, families across Italy leave out a glass of vino and a plate of sausages for La Bufana, who pops down the chimney on her broomstick. According to folklore, 
The old lady turned down an invitation from the three wise men to witness the birth of Christ, and was so devastated about missing it that she spends every Christmas time gliding around the country searching for baby Jesus, and doling out presents to good kids and coal to naughty ones. So yeah, La Bifana. Uh, you can tell me she's benevolent if you want, but what I just heard is that in Italy... Essentially, Santa Claus is a drunken witch who flies through the night around Christmas hunting the baby Jesus. That sounds kind of murdery. And it dovetails with... Number 8. Hide your broomsticks. The Flying Christmas Witches of Norway. In Norway, a unique Christmas tradition is that on Christmas Eve, all broomsticks are hidden out of sight. It's thought by Norwegians that the night before Christmas, bad witches and spirits will come out. And if there are broomsticks to be found, they will take them and fly them through the skies. If you believe the Norwegians, it may be good practice to put away your broomsticks this Christmas Eve and let the evil witches look somewhere else, but truthfully, if you're missing a broomstick Christmas morning, you can probably just go out and buy another one without too much fuss. Next up, number 7, the Yule Lads, Iceland. Icelandic kids don't get just one Santa Claus. They get 13 mischievous trolls roaming the country a fortnight before Christmas. Like Snow White's Seven Dwarves, each of these thirteen Jolisvenyar, I probably mispronounced that, but it means Yule Lads, has his own personality, including, wait for it, Doorway Sniffer, Spoon Licker, Sausage Swiper, Candle Stealer, Curd Gobbler, and the ominously named Window Peeper. Each takes turns visiting children who leave shoes in their bedroom window, dropping off presents for the good kids and rotting potatoes for the bad ones. Frankly, Iceland, and with all due respect, I don't want doorway sniffer, window peeper, spoon licker, curd gobbler, or especially sausage swiper anywhere near my children on Christmas, because that is seriously kind of murdery. Number 6. Eight-Legged Christmas Freaks That's right, Christmas spiders, but generous, lucky Christmas spiders. The Ukraine. Ukrainians take a different approach to Christmas decorations, swapping fairy lights for spider webs. The legend of the Christmas spider explains that a poor widow and her kids cultivated a Christmas tree from a pine cone, but couldn't afford any decorations. Then, on Christmas morning, they woke up to see their tree blanketed in cobwebs, which the sunlight then transformed into gold and silver. Nowadays, trees across Ukraine are decorated with little spider ornaments called povuchki and fake spiderwebs, which is said to be the origin of the sparkly tinsel that shimmers at Christmas time around the world. Alright, I'm going to be honest, that's actually a pretty heartwarming tale. But, on the other hand, imagine this scene on Christmas morning. Excited child. Mommy, mommy, there's a giant spider in the Christmas tree and spiderwebs everywhere. Mother. Wonderful. How lucky we are, Oleg. Bless you, Christmas spiders. Bless you, everyone. Number 5. The Hobby Horse, or Mary Lloyd, Wales. Welsh culture is ancient and steeped in superstition. In America, when we think of a hobby horse, we're thinking about a wooden or stuffed horse's head on a stick, an innocent child's toy that gave rise to the phrase, riding the pony. Well, the Hobby Horse, or Mary Lloyd, is a Christmas tradition in Wales, but it's nothing like the hobby horses that we're used to in the States. Residents of South Wales enjoy parading an undead horse around their villages to celebrate the happiest time of the year. 
In a wassailing display dating back to probably Celtic times, the custom involves draping a white sheet over a pole with a horse's skull attached and knocking on town folks' doors, no doubt giving them the fright of their lives. The party carrying the morbid effigy then sings to the residents, who are supposed to sing back before relinquishing some food or drink. There is some debate about whether Mary Lloyd translates as Holy Mary or Grey Mare, but it seems equally creepy. Either way. Number 4. The Christmas Murder Cat, Iceland. Now, Iceland is the only country making a double appearance on this list. Perhaps that's fitting. They are Iceland, after all, and this is Christmas. But the ice pun may be less relevant than the fact that 60% of Icelanders are descended from bloodthirsty Vikings. I know, if anyone in Iceland is listening, look, I understand that you're not all bloodthirsty. Forgive me some storyteller's exaggeration, but also, I do have a question for you. Why the Christmas murder cat? What am I talking about? Well, everyone listening, not just Icelanders, I have a question for you, too. Ever wonder why you always buy a new outfit for the holidays? Perhaps it derives from the legend of the Icelandic Yule cat, Yolakaturin, which I may have also mispronounced. But Yolakaturin, as it's called in Iceland, is another enforcer of good behavior through fear. Traditionally, those who finished their chores in time for Christmas received new clothes for the occasion, while the lazy folk did not. The Yule Cat, big as a house, is said to lurk in the Icelandic countryside on Christmas Eve and will eat anyone who did not receive new clothes for Christmas. There never was better incentive to go shopping. And now, folks, we've made it onto the podium. At number three, receiving the bronze medal for the most murdery Christmas tradition from around the world, we have Die, Trash Satan, Die, Guatemala. They say that cleanliness is next to godliness. In Guatemala, it's believed that the devil and many other evil spirits lurk in the dark, damp, and dirty corners of one's home. So they spend the whole week before Christmas cleaning, sweeping, collecting rubbish, and sprucing up the place piling all the dirt and trash in a giant heap outside. Like an angel atop a Christmas tree, an effigy of Satan is placed on top of the garbage mountain, and the whole heap is set on fire. This fascinating tradition is called La Quema del Diablo, which translates to the burning of the devil, and it symbolizes the burning of all the bad and misfortune for the past year to start a new year from the ashes. Now, once I've explained it, La Quema del Diablo sounds like a pretty cool, normal, healthy Christmas tradition. But when I say, Immolate the devil on a pile of trash, it sounds like I'm singing a Megadeth song, not describing a way to worship Jesus. Alright, number two. Many of you have probably heard of this one. We've arrived at the notorious Krampus from Austria. As if the threat of missing out on presents wasn't bad enough, Austrian kids who end up on Santa's naughty list also have to worry about Krampus a horned, hairy demon that snatches misbehaving children and shoves them into his wicker basket, serving as St. Nicholas's creepy enforcer. Many towns in Austria and neighboring countries, especially the Alpine villages around Salzburg and Tyrol, celebrate Krampusnacht on December 5th, when dozens of men dressed up as the half-goat demon parade through the streets, brandishing sticks and terrorizing children. In fact, the mythological Krampus doesn't just shove children in his basket. He's said to drag them straight to hell. And now, I'll bet you're wondering if Krampus is number two, what the heck is number one? 
What could possibly be more kind of murdery than Santa's sidekick Krampus? How do you top the Robin to St. Nick's Batman turning out to be a horned demon with a wicker child basket who drags bad kids straight to hell? Well, I'm glad you asked, because you see, I don't think of kind of murdery as referring only to murder. To me, it's an adjective that describes everything that is garish or bizarre about people and the things that they do. And, you know, if you think about it, Krampus, as scary as he is, is really just a riff on coal in your stocking, or even the eventually lovable Grinch. But this next one? I have no words. I mean, I do have words, obviously. It's a podcast, but wow. Just wow. Number one on the top 12 kind of murderous Christmas traditions from around the world is the pooper and pooping log from Catalonia, Spain. You heard me right, but just in case you think you didn't, yes, I said the pooper and the pooping log. Now, perhaps this tradition was the inspiration for South Park's Mr. Hanky the Christmas Pooh, but for some inexplicable reason, Catalans observe not one, but two poop-based Christmas traditions that will put a smile on your feces. <clears throat> Sorry, faces. The first is the caganer, roughly meaning the pooper, a figurine of a pantsless peasant laying a cable that snuck into nativity scenes alongside Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Now, I'm sure to some of you listening, this may sound utterly blasphemous and offensive, but please remember I'm just reporting, I'm not endorsing, and this is a Spanish Christmas tradition. And in general, Spain is a very Christian country. But, at least in Catalonia, they do have two different scat-based traditions. Sorry, I mean traditions. The first, as I just told you, is the peasant, naked from the waist down, dropping a dookie in the nativity. And if you think I'm just some disrespectful heretic making this up for a gross laugh, please Google it. It's real, because the second tradition, and I'm not even going to correct myself this time, is cagatillo, or the pooping log. Although I think that translates directly to poop uncle. But the pooping log is a small stick with a smile on its face that lives on the dinner table in December. It is, quote, fed, unquote, every day with nuts and sweets and kept warm with a blanket, and then gets beaten with sticks on Christmas Eve to poop out presents. In reality, the kids just duck out to pray for a moment while the relatives put gifts under Uncle Poop's, the pooping logs, blanket. That's real. That's real, everybody. Look it up. So there you have it. The winner of the top 12 kind of murderous Christmas traditions from around the world is Spain's Double Deuce. Thanks again to Eric and Jimbo from the Tragedy of Cinema. If you enjoyed your time with me, please do find Kinda Murdery wherever you get your podcasts, and please do subscribe. I'd love to hang out with you again. I'm Zevin Odelberg, and this has been Kinda Murdery. Merry Christmas, everybody. So yeah, that just happened. If you don't mind, give me a second. Seven. 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 Ah, here you are. What? How on earth did you make the nice list? Well now. We can't have that.
Not after hearing that. Sorry, Zevin, but it is what it is. <laughs> but back to the problem at hand. I'm really starting to get worried now. My little friends are missing and no one is making Christmas toys. Who would want Christmas ruin that hasn't already tried? I just can't think of a single person. So, let's just keep looking. They have got to be here somewhere. There's too many of them to be hiding. They've got to all be together. But this is a very, very large place. Wait a minute. Ah, I haven't tried the community pool yet. Now that would make sense. It's cold and the pool is heated. Plus, we do have a cocoa machine there too. Well, Kenny Canes, I just about don't blame them. But we just have so much to do. Let's get there quick, shall we? Let's get there. Quick. Wait. Oh, wait. That's on the other side of this place. That's way too far to walk. Ah. I have an idea. <whistles> ah, Cupid. Perfect, my friend. My strongest reindeer. I need a favor, old friend. The elves. Have you seen them? No, they're not in the workshop. That's the problem. Yes, I've checked the cocoa room as well. Yes, my friend. I'm worried too. That's why I need your help. I need a ride to the pool. I bet you that's where they're at. What do you mean, fat chance? Cupid, are you making fat jokes? I'm serious. I need a ride. Now, turn around so I can mount up. I'm not going to argue with you about this. Now, not in front of our guests. Fine, fine, fine. I'll play another podcast. Then we can talk about this like man and deer. Fine, reindeer. Which one should I play? For Christmas? No, I don't think so. Now, what do you mean you won't talk to me unless I play The Evil Never Dies? I don't care if they're your favorite podcast or... Fine. As for all of you out there, again, I am sorry. 
This wasn't my choice. Everybody, I'm Brett. Yeah, I'm Carl, and this is the Evil Never Dies podcast, and this is our Christmas special. Yes, it is. We want to thank uh, Jimbo and Kyle for letting us do another little spot here on uh, their Christmas show. And we're not going to try to take up too much time, so let's get into it. We are going to do the original Black Christmas. From 1974. 1974. I thought it was 1971, so I had the wrong date. You did. I did. All right. Let's get into it then. Black Christmas, 1974, directed by Bob Clark, written by A. Roy Moore, produced by Bob Clark. Cinematography, Reginald H. Morris. Edited by Stan Cole. Music score by Carl Zittrer. That was a good score, by the way. Yes, it was really dark and uh, brooding. Very. Uh, Production companies were Canadian Film Development Corporation and Film Funding Limited. And distributed by Ambassador Film Distributors and Warner Brothers in the U.S. It was released October 11th, 1974, just in time for Halloween. It said it came out for Christmas, though. Yeah, I know. You'd think it would have. You would think it would have. But it did not. It came out for Halloween. Had a running time of 98 minutes. Country of origin is Canada. It language, was a Canadian movie. English language. Uh, budget was six hundred and twenty thousand dollars, which is uh, pretty is low. That Canadian for dollars. Six hundred and twenty thousand, and it brought in four point one million at the box office. So, so they banked on this movie. Yes, they did. They banked on it. I don't even. All right, let's go over the cast here. Olivia Hussey as Jess. Here, Dulia as Peter, Margot Kidder as Barb, John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. John Saxon, he's been in a lot of good movies. Yes, he has. Uh, Marion Walden as Mrs. McHenry. Uh, she was like sort of like the house mother. The den mother, or whatever you call those people. Uh, Andrea Martin as Phil, 
James Edmond as Mr. Harrison, Douglas McGrath as Sergeant Nash, Arthur Hindle as Chris, Lynn Griffin as Claire, Michael Rappaport as Patrick. Michael Rappaport, I know yeah. that name. Yeah, he's been in a lot of movies too. Uh, Leslie Les Carlson as Bill. Martha Gibson as Mrs. Quafey. I guess that's how you say it. John Rudder as La as the laughing detective. He shouldn't have been that, laughing. I guess that was his only scene. He was just laughing throughout the whole scene. David Clement as Kogan. Well, who played Billy is what I want to know. All right, we're getting to that. Hold on, baby bird. I'm going to feed you. Okay, feed it. Julian Reed as Officer Jennings. And Nick Mancusco as Billy and the phone voice. That was a good phone voice. Yes, it was. And Bob Clark, who was the director as Billy's Shadow. And the phone voice, uncredited. And Albert J. Dunk as Billy's Point of View, uncredited. All right, Carl, you want to tell the plot of the movie? Yeah, basically, it's, it's Christmas break, and we're at a college. And it starts out where we see this weirdo climbing up a ladder. So he's up to no good, obviously. But it's in a sorority house, and the sorority, the sorority sisters are making plans for the holiday. But they keep getting this strange phone call from somebody. So it starts to put them on edge. Then one of the girls disappears, so they contact the police, who's not really concerned. They kind of think it's more of a, just a joke. Then it gets a little more serious when they find a 13-year-old girl dead in the park. Yep. So that's sort of the plot. We got a guy making these phone calls to these sorority girls and people start dying dude they start dying yes now this is considered one of the first slasher films what are your thoughts on that i don't really see it as a slasher film i don't either i think of it more of like a psychological thriller more than anything agreed there really wasn't much blood in the movie no there wasn't there was a couple of good kill scenes but uh other than that, it was pretty tame, mild. Yeah, compared. there's not very many overly bloody sequences in it. Um, no, there wasn't. It's more of an unnerving tale that could be very real. It, yep. It's very realistic. Um, the camera work and the point of view shots were very well done as well, I thought. Yes. So good cinematography on it. For sure. Um, of course, Margot Kidder, who would later be, you know, a pretty known actress. Um, of course, she was in Superman as Lois Lane. Yep. And John Saxton, who would be known for lots of horror movies, but of course he was in Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. But I don't really see this as a um, 
slasher film, but that's what everybody wants to call it, the first slasher film. Yeah, they say it paved the way for, like, John Carpenter's Halloween and uh, Friday the 13th and all, you know, the genre, you know, the slasher genre. But I really consider this, like I said, a psychological thriller because it was, uh, it's really creepy for sure. It definitely has its creep factor. All right, you want to go over some trivia? Let's do trivia. All right, according to the director, Bob Clark, the original script for the film featured murder scenes that were more graphic, but uh, felt that it would be more effective if the murders were toned down a bit and kept subtle on screen, which I think it worked really well. All right. In uh, 1986, Olivia Hussey met with producers to for the film Roxanne, starring Steve Martin. And Steve Martin met her and said, "Oh my God, Olivia, you're in one of my favorite all-time films." (laughs) That's funny. And she thinks that she thought it was Romeo and Juliet from 1968. I remember that movie. And he was like, nope, it was uh, Black Christmas. Wow. (laughs) And Steve Martin claimed to have seen it around 27 times. That's as cool. I never would have thought of that. Yeah. All right. NBC scheduled this film for its primetime network debut on January 28th, 1978, under the title... Stranger in the House. That's a good title. But on January 15th, 1978, two female students at Florida State University were murdered and the assailant who broke into the sorority house where they lived. And then it kind of life mimic the movie mimic real life. And three other women were uh, attacked in the area. Uh, So the local TV stations asked NBC to pull it. And they put a different movie on, Doc Savage, Man of Bronze, instead. But they... Did they ever show? That's what they put on instead of it. Yeah, but did they ever play it on NBC? Yes, they did. Uh, on May 14th, later that same year, they actually played it as a late night movie. Yeah, that's more appropriate. <laughs> Excuse me. And it ended up being the perpetrator of the crimes I know at this. Florida State University. I know this part. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. I remember that. So, how creepy is that? Yeah, I know. All righty. The audio for the demented phone calls was edited into the film during post-production. While shooting the footage for the phone call scenes, the actresses were actually just reacting to threatening dialogue being spoken from director Bob Clark off-camera. So he's just like talking to them, and they're reacting to it, which they did a pretty good job. If you actually watch them when they're on the phone. They do. The phone. They do a good job. 
Now, I do know the, the phone calls I thought were pretty vulgar. Yeah, well, they were. Especially for the 70s. They were... When I rewatched this, um, I was like, wow, this is a little little much. So they're, they're pretty vulgar phone calls. The film had only moderate box office success and negative local criticism when originally released. However, the film went on to have a huge cult following. It has since received a criti critical reevaluation is now considered a classic. Which I think it is a classic. I watch it at least once a year, I think. Well, here's something you probably did not know. Did you know this was Elvis Presley's favorite horror movie? And he really? watched it every Christmas? Really? Yes, it was. Well, me and Elvis got something in common then, because I usually watch it every Christmas season, too. Well, that's a legend. Whether if it's true or not, we don't know. But Elvis died in 1977, so that would have just gave him three years to watch the movie. So it could be just a legend. All right. The snow seen outside of the sorority house was actually fake because there had been surprisingly little little snowfall during the filming. A foam material that was provided by the local fire department was used for snow on the lawn, and according to cinematographer Albert J. Dunk, the substance actually caused the grass on the lawn to grow greener than <laughs> ever the following spring. That's funny. Wow. The film was shot in 40 days. Did you know that? What's that? They shot the film in 40 days. 40 days. Yeah. It's a pretty quick shoot. The original title of the film script was called Stop Me. It was director Bob Clark who came up with the title Black Christmas, saying that he liked the irony of something dark occurring during such a festive holiday. Well, what else we got for the movie? Star Margot Kidder admitted in an interview that she had never thought that the film would become a hit. Was surprised to learn that it had gained such a large cult following over the years. Yeah, it did gain that. I still watch it every year, so. Nick Mancuso reprised his role as Billy's voice for an audio commentary as his character for the 40th anniversary Blu-ray release of the film, which well, you talk, probably yeah, have. Let's talk about right the Blu-ray release. Um, of course, this came from the Scream Factory, and it's got two discs. One disc is all basically uh, bonus features, and there's an um, interview with um, Art Hendel in there, and there's actually a documentary that. It's called The Twelve Days of Black Christmas. It's a good documentary. And um, there's interviews with others, but the audio commentary is also there with Bob Bob Clark the um, and John Saxton. And there's a second audio um, commentary. And he actually, uh, Lick Man, uh, Nick Mancino does it as Billy in the, in the Billy voice. So that's pretty funny. Oh, cool. That was a weird voice. It was a weird voice, like, but like, he actually has the entire commentary in that voice. 
That, that's, that's, I'm going to That is available from the Scream Factory, it. and it's got a, the original cover, and they also have the bonus cover, so there you go. Once again, uh, shout out to the Scream Factory. We were actually the Shout Factory, so that was sort of a pun intended. <laughs> I also made a couple of remakes of this movie. That's true. And we were talking before we filmed this, the 2006 remake, which was basically, um, most people didn't like it. It was, uh, it sort of not even a remake. It's like a whole different movie. But I'm a big fan of the 2006 Black, they got it as Black Xmas, which Christmas, same thing. But it's a total different movie. It's more violent, and it's it contrasts with the original movie, and very inconsistent as far as a remake. But it was a big success, so I'm a big fan of the 2006 version. We may actually have to do a review on this sometime soon. I think we might. I actually have the HD DVD of this movie that actually will play on my PlayStation 5. <laughs> All right, Carl. Well, I think that's about all we got for Black Christmas. Uh, what do you rate this movie as? I'm going to give this movie a 2.5. Call a it right down the 5. middle. Okay. It's got its uh, moments that are a little dry, but just the um, the soundtrack and uh, the creepy factor, I'm going to give it a 2.5. All right. I'm going to give it a three and a half, 3.5. Okay, that's fair enough. Uh, like you said, the soundtrack is a very creepy soundtrack. And just, just a creepy movie all the way around. Just yeah, the way this... and Billy, you got, I mean, just for him alone. It's, it's, yep. And that voice, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I give it a three and a half. Sounds fair to me. All right, Carl, do you got anything else you want to say about Black Christmas from 1974? That's all I've got. All Just right. Thank, thank everybody. Jimbo and Kyle thank, uh, for letting us do this. For sure. And uh, we wanted to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. And uh, stay evil. Stay evil, everybody. I just listened to. First, it was kind of murdery, 
Then the evil never dies? What's next? Or do I even want to know? As you can probably tell, I'm walking. I've decided I just didn't want to ride on the back of a beast after all. But we're just about there. I can see the lights and not too soon. I'm freezing. Ho, 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 ho. either. I don't get it. Oh, perfect. Hot cocoa. Ah, now that hits the spot. <laughs> but... Quick dip in the hot pool would be better. And there's no one here. So. You're going to have to excuse me. Here, listen to the next podcast. Looks like 80s E. Is that a podcast or one of them? DJ Drizzle peeps. <laughs> I don't know. Either way, enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. It's 80s E here on behalf of the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. I'm delighted to have a small part in this year's edition of It's a Wonderful Podcast Life. With that in mind, I decided I'd like to share with you the true story of tragedy, pain, and hope behind the classic Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It goes like this. In March of 1863, 18-year-old Charles Appleton Longfellow left his family's house on Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a colonial mansion that had served as General Washington's headquarters from 1775 to 1776. Unbeknownst to his family, he boarded a train for Washington, D.C., traveling over 400 miles down the eastern seaboard in order to join President Lincoln's army to fight in the Civil War. Charles, born June 9, 1844, was the oldest of six children born to Fanny Elizabeth Appleton and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the celebrated literary critic and poet. Charles had five younger siblings, a brother aged 17, and four sisters, aged 13, 10, and 8, and one who had died as an infant. Less than two years earlier, Charles's mother, Fanny, had tragically died after her dress caught on fire. Her husband, Henry, awakened from a nap, tried to extinguish the flames as best he could with a rug and then his own body, but she had already suffered severe burns. She died the next morning, July 10, 1861, and Henry Longfellow's own burns were severe enough that he was unable to attend his own wife's funeral. He stopped shaving on account of the burns, growing a beard that would become associated with his image. 
At times, he feared that he would be sent to an asylum on account of his grief. When Charlie, as he was called, arrived in Washington, D.C., he sought to enlist as a private with the 1st Massachusetts Artillery. Captain W.H. McCartney, commander of Battery A, wrote to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow for written permission for Charles to become a soldier. H.W.L., as his son referred to him, granted permission. Longfellow later wrote to his friends Charles Sumner, Senator of Massachusetts, John Andrew, Governor of Massachusetts, and Edward Dalton, Medical Inspector of the Sixth Army Corps, to lobby for his son to become an officer. But Charlie had already impressed his fellow soldiers and superiors with his skills, and on March 27, 1863, he was commissioned as, a, as second lieutenant in the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry, assigned to Company G. At the Battle of Chancellorsville in Virginia, April 30th to May 6th in 1863, he saw no combat duty but spent his time guarding wagons. Charlie fell ill with camp fever, probably typhoid or typho-malarial fever, and was sent home to recover for several months with his family. That summer, having missed the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, July 1st through the 3rd, 1863, he rejoined his unit on August 15, 1863. On the first day of that December, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was dining alone at his home when a telegram arrived with the news that his son had been severely wounded, inaccurately stating that he had been shot in the face four days earlier. On November 27, 1863, while involved in a skirmish during the Battle of Mine Run campaign, Charlie had been shot through the left shoulder with the bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade. It had traveled across his back and nicked his spine, Charlie avoiding being paralyzed by less than an inch. He was carried into New Hope Church, Orange County, Virginia, and then transported to Rapidian River. Charlie's father and younger brother Ernest immediately set out for Washington, D.C., arriving on December the 3rd. Charlie arriving by train on December 5th. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was alarmed when informed by the Army surgeon that his son's wound was very serious and that paralysis might ensue. Three surgeons gave a more favorable report that evening suggesting a recovery that would require him to be long in healing at least six months. On Friday, December 25th, 1863, Longfellow, as a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest which had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance in his own heart and the world he observes around him that Christmas day. He heard the Christmas bells ringing in Cambridge, singing of peace on earth from Luke 2.14. But he observed the world of injustice and violence that seemed to mock the truthfulness of this optimistic outlook. The theme of listening recurs throughout the poem, eventually leading to a settledness of a confident hope even in the midst of bleak despair as he recounts to himself that God is alive and righteousness shall prevail. Within a decade, 1872, the poem was put to music by the English organist John Baptist Calkin for a processional set to the melody Waltham. And I'm just going to read the poem now to you. 
goes like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent, and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that concludes the short story. So Jimbo and I want to send out a special thank you to all of the podcast listeners, and it's our hope that you are enjoying the Twilight Zone podcast that we're sending your way. We also want to wish each one of you a truly peaceful and Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And with that being said, that's a wrap and cut. Oh, back already? (laughs) Well, in case you're wondering, I haven't found the missing elves yet, and and I suppose being in here isn't going to help. (laughs) You caught me. (laughs) I'm guilty. How about you listen to another show while I get dressed? In the meantime, I have an idea. While you're listening... Send me your thoughts on what you think they might be. No, seriously. Let's think about it and your thoughts will come to me. How do you think I know what everybody wants for Christmas? Ho, 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 ho. I'll get to thinking. I need some help. Here, I'll help you out. Here's a longer show to listen to. It should give you a little more time to think about it. Let's see, who's next? Ho, 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 ho. Oh, you are in for a treat. It's one of my favorite bald persons and his wife. Now there's a colorful young lady. I like her. She is always on the nice list. Her husband, on the other hand, well, let's just get to the show, shall we? Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We are Hillbilly Horror Stories, and we are delighted to be asked back by James and A Tragedy of Cinema to be a part of their Christmas special. I believe this is our third third year. Yes, thank you guys for having us. We really appreciate you. So, we had a story that we recently did on our show that was a very uplifting Christmas story, and I thought it would be perfect for you guys. So, uh, have a listen, and thank you.
So today we're going to discuss the story of Jim McDonald. And you guys are really going to like this, I think. Good. You see, Jim disappeared for 15 years and then reappeared at Christmas time. What? It's quite a story. Sounds like a miracle. Jim and Ann McDonald, they lived in a little small house in Larchmont, New York, which is a suburb of New York City. Jim was a foreman at the post office, and he had been there for 25 years. Now, Jim was very likable, and he knew almost everybody in town. Ann and Jim got married in 1960, and they never had any children, though. Probably because they were still already old at the time. Theoretically. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they weren't that old. But anyway, Jim was 50 uh, in March of 1971, and that's when a series of accidents started to happen. None of them really seemed all that important. You mean or, to him, yes. per se? Okay. Yeah, none of them really seemed all that, that big or, or major, but all of them together collectively resulted in a major medical condition. Now, the first thing was Jim was actually taken out the garbage, and he slipped on some ice on the steps, and he bruised his back, but he also struck his head. Then a few days later, Jim was driving to work, and he had a sneezing fit. This caused him to lose control of his car, and he wrecked it into a telephone pole. Dude. In which time he banged his head into the windshield. He like he banged his head twice in one week? Yes. You know, well, it gets worse. Then a few days later, after that, he was at work. He had a dizzy spell, and he fell down a flight of steps and again hit his head. Oh, my gosh. He needs to stay home in bed. Well, ten days later... <laughs> He again lost control of his car and hit another pole. This time, he was found unconscious. He was hospitalized for three days with a concussion. Mm-hmm. On March 29th, Jim borrowed a friend's station wagon and drove to Kennedy Airport to pick up Ann's brother and his family. First of all, who loaned him a car? And first of all, After why... He's it twice. That's what I'm saying. Why is he even allowed to be driving at this point? 1971. Things were different. So he picks the family up, and then he drives back to Ann's sister's house. He drops them off, then he returns the car where he picked it up at to his friend at loaned it to him at 10 p.m. He was unaware, and this is going to be an important key that you wouldn't think initially, but he was unaware that his wallet with his ID had somehow slipped out of his pocket and was in the floorboard of that station wagon. So the car owner offered to drive Jim home, but Jim said that he had a headache and he wanted to walk home since it was only about a 15-minute walk and he felt that this would actually help his headache. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's got a headache. <laughs> well, at 11.15, Ann called the car's owner and he had had no idea that Jim wasn't home yet. I mean, he'd been, he'd been gone like an hour and 15 minutes mm -hmm. for a 15-minute walk. Well, at 2 a.m., Ann calls the police and she reported Jim missing. After 24 hours, the police had put out an all-points bulletin, and they started reaching out to friends and relatives to see if they had heard from him. They even checked unidentified bodies in the morgue to see if Jim's body was there. Nothing. Detective George Mulcahy was actually assigned to the uh, investigation, and he also knew Jim. They went to church together. He was pretty sure the disappearance had nothing to do with wrongdoing and uh, that there had to be something probably medical you know, involved in this. Mm -hmm. From O'Kay, the only explanation was amnesia. 
I don't know how you get to that that quick, but with all the medical things that had happened to him and the yeah, hitting, hit you know, it, yeah. the, the hits to the head, that's what he was thinking. Now, amnesia can be caused by stroke, Alzheimer's, alcoholism, severe physical trauma, or blows to the head, which obviously Jim had a bunch of over the two-week period. So as weeks passed, Anne did not give up hope, but she did realize that she had to earn a living somehow. Because without him, his income was gone. All right. And he was the only income provider at the time. Mm. So she started babysitting, and she worked at a supermarket. She also worked at a hospital cafeteria. And she would work at the hospitals on holidays because she said it was easier if she kept busy. Busy, yeah. But she kept her faith. She kept all of Jim's clothes covered in the closet so they wouldn't accumulate dust. And she even kept his razor and shaving cream in the bathroom cabinet. So what happened to Jim? Good question. Well, during his walk home, Jim did black out. He lost all memory of his name and where he lived. Now, what happened next is kind of speculation because Jim doesn't really remember exactly what happened. But they assume that he made his way to Grand Central Terminal and he either got on a train or a bus going south. The next thing Jim knew that he was in Philadelphia, a city he had never been to before. Wow. He kept seeing real estate agent signs for a James Peters, and he decided that that would be a cool name, so he decided that was his name. He was now James Peters. <laughs> he he only had the reality of the presence. He didn't have a past or anything, yeah. so all he knew was mm-hmm. right here and there. So it wouldn't that... I don't remember this, or I can't. It was just, I guess I'll need to pick something. Oh, my gosh. It's as if he was born that day. Oh, wow. How crazy is that? He went and got a new Social Security card, because back then you didn't need an ID or a birth certificate to get a Social Security card. So he just got a new birth, uh, a new Social Security card and just started over. Then, then he got IDs and everything after that. Oh, With, so like there was more than two James Pecker. I mean... Uh, Pecker. I'm sorry. James... Peters. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure. sure yeah. Just like everybody, there's several names. But he went and got one with a whole new Social Security number. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they, how they just give you a new Social yeah, Security. Yeah, how do they do that? Or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he had uh, maybe he had that guy's Social Security number for all. No, I don't know. But anyway, he had to have a job too, right? So he took a job in a cafeteria at a health club. Then he worked at a uh, cancer research institute cleaning out animal cages. Mm-hmm. He then also got a night shift job at a, uh, a P&P luncheonette, is what they called it, where he became pretty well known for his omelets as well as his courtesy and good humor. <laughs> Apparently, he can make a hell of an omelet. Well, all right. After a year, he felt established enough at P&P where he quit his job at the Cancer Research Center. Jim made some new friends, and he joined an American Legion post, a Knights of Columbus, and he became an active member of the St. Hugh Roman Catholic Church. He never talked about his past, obviously, and his friends never pried. One friend said, eh, we just assumed that he must be from New York because of his accent. And Jim replied, I guess so. But they didn't know. I mean, now, what if... <laughs> I mean, what was they like? What do you mean, you guess so? You don't know where you're from, or they probably never questioned him. They you don't never think? Questioned it. So Jim loved kids, and at Christmas time he would play Santa 
at orphanages. Aww. He would even grow a long white beard just to fit the part. That's very sweet. His friend Cheryl Sloan said that they wondered about his past, but they figured he either had to be an ex-priest or a criminal. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> why else would you not have a past? Yeah. So then you got Bernadine Goloskowski. Now, she actually started to work at PNP shortly after Jim had started. Her mother had recently passed, and Jim apparently had no family, so they sort of kind of adopted each other. Jim became a kind of a father figure to Bernadine and her husband, Pete, and their four children. The children absolutely loved him. In 1985, just a little bit about a month before Christmas, Bernadine noticed that Jim had grown unusually quiet and subdued. Something seemed to be on his mind. So on Thanksgiving, they invited Jim over. He was sitting with his adopted family watching television when he saw a mail carrier making a delivery in the rain on TV. <laughs> and Pete said, man, that's one job I sure wouldn't want. Oh, my gosh. And Jim said, I think I used to be a postman. Oh, so it's coming back to him. Yeah, and Pete was like, really, where? Jim said, I don't know. Pete said, New York? Jim said, I'm not sure, but I think I remember my parents a little bit. So Jim would usually spend all the holidays at this house because mm -hmm. he didn't have any family, and now they've, like I said, kind of adopted him. But on Christmas Eve, he never arrived at the house. Now, normally, he would he would go and make his rounds to all of his other friends that he worked with and stuff, and then he would show up at the holidays there last. But obviously, after years of doing this, he just didn't show up Christmas Eve. But there was a good reason for it. See, on G December 22nd, Jim had fallen and hit his head. What is his problem? The next day at work, he seemed kind of distracted. And late that afternoon, he fell again and struck his head. The next day... Dude, was, walk much? What is up? The next day was December 24th. And when he awoke, he was confused, but also excited. Because after 15 years... He knew exactly who he was. Wow. He was he was Jim, and he had a wife named Anne in Larchmont, New York. Isn't that something? But then he was suddenly scared. I mean, it's been 15 years. Yeah. Was Anna even alive still? Was she remarried? If she wasn't, how would she even greet him after 15 years? So he would soon find out the answer. He went straight to the house... Didn't tell any of his friends back home. He just left. He just went, he went straight to Anne's house, and Anne had not changed her residence or her phone number just in case Jim ever tried Aww. to get in contact with her. So she had just gotten home from Christmas Mass. She lit a candle and prayed for Jim at that Mass. Mm -hmm. She's home. There was a light snow starting to fall, and she was supposed to go to her sister's house for dinner, and uh, she wanted to hurry up and get on the road before the roads got slick. Yeah. Then the doorbell rang, and she's like, oh, this is not a good time for a visitor. I'm trying to get out of here. And opened the door, and she looked at a man with a thick white beard. But she immediately recognized him. She couldn't speak. Jim looked at her and said, hello, Anne. Can you imagine at 15 years, that's how no, you... No, what do you... I mean, I don't even know how you react. Jim, she gasped, is it true? And... She was breathing as if she had just ran, been running. Mm -hmm. She was, you know, just 
quick bursts of breath. And they barely even touched hands. They were too stunned to even fall into each other's arms. The embracement and the tears would come later. Anne led Jim to his favorite chair, which she kept all these years. And they began to talk and kind of started filling in the gaps. And eventually Jim got tired and he went to bed. The day after Christmas, Jim reported himself to police because he's now yeah. back after being missing for 15 years. And uh, that night, a reporter called Bernadine to tell her that Jim was okay. And a week after the return, Jim had a physical, including a CAT scan, and Jim was listed as in complete normal health. And Jim and Anne then resumed their lives together as a married couple. Jim said that each day we are together, it makes the time we were absent seem shorter. That is a bizarre story. And my, if I was his wife, I'd be like, if you fall and hit your head again, <laughs> don't even bother coming home. <laughs> well, that's so cool. I love that story. So, anyways. Gosh, I our... can't even imagine the look on her face, or his even, for that fact. And and I'm sure they're both passed away by now. Oh. Because that was 1985, and Jim was um, 65 at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just assuming... You know, that was 30-some years ago. They would both be in their 90s or something at that point. I don't know how old she was. Isn't that something? Anyways. Well, what a great ending to that story. I thought that was a fun little uplifting Christmas story. Well, yeah, and and that she hadn't married or anything or, you know, so they didn't have that to come back to. Oh, she literally kept the faith for 15 years that he was coming back. Bless her heart. So I love that story. It's wonderful. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We appreciate you listening to us. Thanks. Love you guys. Ho, 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 ho. Welcome back. Did you enjoy the episode from Jerry and Tracy? Good, good. Now, while you were listening to that, I did receive some suggestions from some of... Wait. I'm getting a late suggestion. What? 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 Shame on you, Brett. I will not check the bar because we do not have a... No, we don't have a strip club either. Oh, let me tell you, young man. If you aren't on the naughty list already, I most certainly will make sure you would be. That goes for your little friend Carl, too. Now, as I was saying, I did receive some good suggestions. I'm standing in front of one of them right now. This is our little piece of heaven. Our gym slash relax area. We get massages and spas along with a good workout if we wish to. Let's jump inside and hope this is where everybody is. I knew it. Empty. When I find those little elves, I'm going to... Wait. What was that? It sounds like it's coming from over there. Oh, I see someone.
said, don't disturb me while I... Santa? Talk. About what? How about that weather, huh? That global warming is really kicking this year, huh? Where are they? Who? You know who. Where are they? The reindeer? In their stalls, I'm sure. Here, I'll go check. Stop. Now turn around. I'm only going to ask you this one more time before I make this very hard on you. Where are they? Have you checked the cocoa bar? I hear... Um... <laughs> Give me your phone. Sir? You heard me. Give me your phone now. Here. What are you going to do? Here. Now out with your headphones. Why, sir? You don't want to give them up? Then that's fine. That's actually quite brave of you. I think that deserves a reward. Don't you? <laughs> um, no? Sure it does. Now, put them on. No, really, sir. I'm good. I do what I do. N no rewards needed. Oh, I insist, Kevin. I, I, I don't have a choice, do I? Sure you do. Tell me where they are, and you won't have to go through this. I can't. They'll kill me. Then you leave me no other choice. But I'll be nice. Here, bite down on this. It helps with the pain. Good. Now this is your last choice. I can't. Tell me where they are. The pain! Make her stop! Santa, please! Only you can make this stop. <laughs> okay, 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 I'll tell you to turn it off! That should be against the law for inhumane treatment. Actually, I think it is in four states. Now spill it, Kevin. Fine. They're in the... Wait, wait, wait. Before you tell me, let me start the last podcast for the audience. Are you telling me there are people listening to all of this? Yes. Right here, in this device. Can they hear me right now? Yes, they can. Listen to me and listen to me good. You're all being added to the naughty list. Not one of you out there trying to stop this madman from torturing me. Not one... You're all... That's enough. Merry Christmas. This is Tim from Triple H Media. Before we get into this year's Christmas audio drama, I would like to thank James for inviting us once again. It has truly been an honor to be part of the special every year. I have watched James and his co-hosts grow with each year and it has been fun to watch the changes and their growth. And just like most podcasts, Triple H Media is going through some changes ourselves. Some very big changes. 
We have a new show coming out in late 2023 or early 2024. It's called Intercede, and I would love to give you all a quick sample of the show's format. Let me give you a little background real quick. This is all in the first season when it's released, but in the meantime, let me explain to you what's going on. So, this will sort of be like the cliff notes. The two characters are Earth-based angelic assistants. They just recently died and were returned to Earth to help take some of the workload off the angels. They are learning as they go and make plenty of mistakes along the way. Some quite funny. If you listen to Hibley Horror House or Solo, the format should be familiar as well as some of the actors' voices. Intercede will be a faith-based audio drama and I hope you enjoy a sneak listen. Merry Christmas and God bless. love the smell and sights of fresh snow. I hate to tell you, but if the snow has a smell, I think there's a serious problem. You know what I mean. No, not really. How do you explain it? It's, it's sort of, hmm, I don't know, clean, fresh, I'm not quite sure. It just smells different. Whatever. Don't do that. What? That. Whatever, Vanessa. I feel like you're writing me off. I'm doing no such thing. It's just... Sometimes I... I have no clue what on earth you're talking about or... Even know how to process it. Whatever, Mike. <laughs> you're a lost cause. You know that? Yep. You're stuck with me. Forever. And I would have it no other way. Ah, you really know how to kiss up, don't ya? <laughs> I do try. Mike, stop. Why, what is it? Up there, on the bridge. She's crying. What is she doing on the bridge railing? That's not very safe. I, I think she's going to jump. Mike, stop her! Hey! Don't! Stop! Stop! I'm stopping. Just please. Come down from there. Stop! Don't come any closer. All right, all right, all right. I'm stopping. Look, 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 look. Stop, stop, stop. Just please. Come down from there. You're going to get hurt if you slip. Or jump. What was that? Look, I don't know what you're going through, but nothing is worth jumping off this bridge. Don't do that. What? Pretend like everything is going to be okay. 
you're right. Not everything is okay. Or you wouldn't be on the ledge, would you? Oh, are you an observant one, lady? What's your name? Doesn't matter. Of course it matters. You matter. Please, just come over to the side of the railing. (laughs) Not happening. Trust me. I will trust you if you tell me what's wrong. (laughs) You don't even know me. You should have just turned around and kept walking. No, we we can't do that. Even if we wanted to, (laughs) we can't. I have no idea what that means, and I, I, I don't even care. <sighs> I'm tired of talking to you both. Goodbye. No, 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 stop! Don't touch me! Don't ever touch me! All right, all right, I'm sorry. Just please don't jump! Why do you care? Because every life is a gift. And why? And why is life being taken away from you so quickly? I'm sorry. I I, I don't understand. If life is so precious, such a gift, then why is it stripped from you? Why does God allow a good person to die? You can't blame Patrick. Shut up! I hate him! Who? <laughs> God! Surely you can't hate God. What was done to make you say that? <laughs> you say life is a gift. God gives life, right? Yes, of course. Then how can he take away something he gave? How can he take a life? What kind of God does that? A loving God. Oh, Oh, so you're telling me that a loving God will take the life away from a person who doesn't deserve to have it taken away. He takes the life of a person who has the biggest heart that you have ever come across. Oh. I, I I see what's happening here. What was his name? Who? It doesn't matter. That's where you're wrong. It does matter. Okay. Oh, please don't play these games with me. I don't want... I don't want to feel better. I want to hurt. I deserve the pain. What? No. No one deserves to hurt. Not like this. (laughs) You, You don't understand. Then please, help us understand. Please. Please. Why did he have to leave me? Who, darling? 
My husband. My husband. I miss him so much. Oh, honey. I promise. This. I do understand. The pain is so intense. (laughs) You know what? There's just no worse pain than losing a loved one. Hey, I get it. I really do. Don't look down. Look at me over here. What is his name? Josh. Josh. Mm. Sounds like a wonderful man. He is. Was. Is. He's still here. Yeah, I don't think so. Did you not hear me? He was ripped out of my life. But look at you. Look at what you're thinking about doing. Is this what Josh would expect out of you? (laughs) Talk to me. What's going on in your head? You can't save me. I don't want saving. It's Christmas Eve and I have no one. No one. Not true. You have us. We're here. We care. You don't know me. You don't know me! Mike? One step ahead of you. Keep her busy. Where's he going? What's he up to? Don't worry about him. Talk to me. Can you please tell me your name? I told you it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I won't be here much longer. Don't talk like that. It's going to be okay. My name is Vanessa. Susan. Susan. That's a very pretty name. So, how did you and Josh meet? Ironically, at church. That's a great place to meet a good man. My mom introduced us. Mom always knows best, right? (laughs) In my case, uh, yeah. What about Josh? What was he like? He was the uh, biggest, goofiest redhead giant I had ever met. Oh, so he was tall? Six six. I called him my big Viking. <laughs> but trust me, tough he wasn't. But we'd have liked him being tough. He made up for it with his big heart. That big, stupid, goofy heart. <laughs> he sounds like a wonderful man. <laughs> he was. 
Hey, hey, hey. Let's not start that back up. Okay? You're doing great. <laughs> you don't understand. What don't I understand? <laughs> Tomorrow's Christmas. And he won't be there. I can't be alone for Christmas. I, I just can't keep going without my love. No, 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 no. Don't look down. You're doing great. Come on, Susan. Keep talking to me. I, I just can't keep going without my love. I'm just not that strong. Yes, you are. You really want to do this. <laughs> tried. Susan? <laughs> Thank you for trying. For caring. But it's just too late. Susan, keep talking to me. Please. Goodbye. No! no. Oh, wow, this is so beautiful. This light, is it sparkling? My God, I've never seen anything so beautiful. Moved in. 
you never left my side. Even when things were tough and it was easy to walk away. It's called love. Love doesn't give up. Ever. Love never leaves just because it's tough. Then why did you? But I'm confused. You just said I I never left you. This is true. You didn't leave me. But life got tough, didn't it? When you died, yes. Then why did you leave God? You said yourself, love never leaves. Because he took you away. He took you away from me. How, how does a loving God give you the best gift you have ever received just to take it away? I'm sorry, that's not love, and if that is love, I don't want it. No, you don't mean that. That's, that's where you're wrong. I do. No, you don't. That's the pain talking. That's the hate that's being put in you. God didn't take me away. He brought me home. This is where I belong. Uh, That's just not fair. I don't understand. And it's okay. You're not supposed to. It's all in his plans. Everything happens for a reason. (laughs) His plans. My love, there's so much going on that you don't understand. So much has already happened that you don't even know about. Then please, tell me what those things are. I can't. I'm sorry. You trust me, right? Always. Then trust me now. Everything is okay. Can you at least tell me you're happy? (laughs) I am. I am very, very happy. I love you. I love you too, so much. You know, God loves you too. I know. And you know he would never hurt you. I know, but... But what? Why give me you? Why... Why put us together? To help each other and then just... Leave me here alone? (laughs) Oh, baby doll, you are not alone. (laughs) I beg to differ. Time's up. Time for you to leave. No, no. I... I don't want to leave. You must. You can't stay here. I don't want to leave. I'm sorry. You have to. You can't stay here. No! I can't leave you. I I don't want to be alone. Remember when I told you there's more that's happening and that you're just not aware of it? Huh. Yes. 
good. Because one of those reasons is why you have to go back. You're needed. No one needs me. I don't have anybody now. That is where you're wrong. You're going to be needed very, very soon. (laughs) Why? (laughs) By who? Our son. (laughs) But we don't have... Wait. What? (laughs) There she is. Are, Are you telling me I'm pregnant? I am. This is wonderful. I told you, I would never leave you. And now, (laughs) now you will always have a little piece of me with you. But it, it won't be the same without you. I know, but you see, my time is up on Earth. But God knows everything. He knows how much you love me. He knew this baby boy needed that same love. Our boy's going to be a very special man. He's going to do great things. You really think I can do this? I know you can. Now go back. Raise our son right. And make sure he knows the love of God. I will. You'll be okay. I promise. How can you... How can you be so sure? Because he sent you some help. He did? Yes. Those people at the bridge. The ones that tried to save me? Yeah. That's them. They were sent to help and prepare you for the baby. So they're angels... Sort of. I, uh... I think I'm ready to go back now. Good. Now, just close your eyes. I love you. I love you too. Merry Christmas. My love. We have a pulse. Ma'am, we're taking you to the hospital. You're going to be okay. It will all be okay now. I hope you enjoyed this early release of Intercede. If you enjoyed what you heard, I invite you to come subscribe to Hillblade Horror House on your podcast player. Please, remember, Intercede is not yet available, but it will be soon. Mike and Josh were played by Tim Mullins. Vanessa was played by Sarah Dionatis. And Susan was played by Paula Johnson. Thank you, and Merry Christmas. Wow. Uh, 
Mm. Wow. Well, while you were listening to the Triple H Media episode, Kevin told me where everyone was. We're standing right in front of that place right now. So, I think we should sneak in and see what the lazy, no-good gremlins are up to. What do you say? Wait. Watch this on the marquee. I haven't seen this up there in the last few days. What's that say? Tonight only. The greatest Christmas movie ever to grace our world. Oh, perfect. I love Miracle on 34th Street. But this is not the time. Come on. Huh. Sounds like they're over in that theater. Yep, I would say this is the one. I can't wait to see the red blush faces when they see me. Blasphemy! Shut it off! I said shut it off! Everyone, sit down! Now! How dare you play this filth in my house? Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Who's responsible for this? You have to count of three to- Relax, Nick. It was me. No. No. There's no way. Long time no see, handsome. Mother Nature? What are you doing here? You know what happened last time with Mrs. Claus. <laughs> I'm not worried about that old woman, Nick. <laughs> now, how about you turn off that little recorder over there? I think we have something to, um, discuss. Uh, 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 but, uh, but, 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 but Christmas. I need to get back to work. We're behind schedule now because of you. Mm, just give me a second. Okay, everyone. Back to the workshop. Double time. To your assembly lines. Well, you look there. We are all alone now. So, how about you turn off that little recorder over there? So that we can... Mm, talk. But this is a Christmas special. There has to be an ending. Well, who do you think you are pulling my helpers out of their workshops? Say it for me, big guy. Say what? Mm, oh. Oh. No. I don't know what you're up to, but this won't work on me. Then, shut off the recorder, and let's see. I can't do that. Then the audience won't know if Christmas was saved. 
Then I guess they'll just have to wait and find out on Christmas, won't they? That's not how this works. Hey, give that back to me. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Mother Nature here. I'm afraid I'm going to have to end this little story. Mommy and Daddy have some things to talk about. Now, be good little boys and girls and go to bed. The Tragedy of Cinema would like to thank you all for listening to this year's Christmas special. They would especially like to thank all their little podcast friends for helping out again this year. Yes, they were awesome, weren't they? So special. If you enjoyed any of the shows you heard tonight, like I have enjoyed the shows I heard tonight, please support these people, like, and subscribe. Perhaps next Christmas, Santa can share what happens after I click this little button. No, 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 that's the off button. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Mother Nature here. I'm afraid I'm going to have to end this little short.